Hello and welcome back to the NovPod, a beginner's guide to anaesthetics, presented by Anesthesia on Air in association with the Royal College of Anaesthetists. My name is Duncan Kemp. I'm one of your co-hosts. I'm an anaesthetic registrar in North London. And with me today, I have my fellow co-host and friend. Owen Dorr. Hello. I'm also a anaesthetic registrar, but this time I'm in Thames Valley. What have we got coming up before I rudely interrupted you? Today's episode is all about pre-assessment and the pre-op visit to the patient. And we are very lucky to have our friend and colleague, Dr. Leila Gusketh, with us, who is currently an anaesthetic CT1. So she's gone through her novice period very recently. She's also one of the producers on the NovPod, so keeps me and Duncan in line. Yeah, absolutely. She is not only a novice, but has another high-performance element in her life where she plays for the England netball team and is currently preparing for the World Cup. So I hope you enjoy. Pre-assessment. Yeah, today's theme, which is pre-assessment. We're joined today by friend and colleague Leila Gusketh, who will be leading as host and asking me and Duncan the things she would have wanted to know when starting out as a novice. And hopefully we will answer them. Yeah, me and Try your best, guys. (laughs) Oh God, I'm sweating now. Leila, lead us on. Yeah, thanks. Hi. Nice to be here. I think it's a really good topic, pre-assessment, because one of the things that before I started, I, I actually didn't even think to look at, which sounds really silly, but I looked at all my drugs and I looked at all these things and then I turned up on day one and someone told me to go and see a patient and I had no idea what I'm doing. I guess my question first for you guys is why do we do it? Why can't we just send all our patients? Why do we have to go and consent them? There's a few important reasons that we do pre-assessment. One is to identify the patient anaesthetic and surgical risks they're going to go through and see what we think are the risks to the patient of them undergoing this procedure. Two is having a think about, is there ways we can optimise this person to reduce those risks we talked about in one? Can I make this patient's journey a safer one? And then third is building that trust and rapport. You can have such an influence on their journey by being a friendly and cooperative face. Duncan, do you have anything else to add to that? One of the key things to identify is there's a heck of a lot of information you potentially need to get from a patient, but there's also a heck of a lot of information you need to understand before you even go and see them. That's where it gets tricky, where I remember on day one, you get this paper profile shoved in front of, and there's lots of things to guide what you say. We're there, like you said, to manage risk, but also to be the safety net and sometimes to pull the brakes and say, hang on a second, there's something not quite right here. We do get a bit of a rep as being the bad guys and stopping the surgeons <laughs> to have their fun. But, you know, surgeon's going to surge. Someone needs the to... official... Surgeon's going to surge. Yeah. That's, that's basically my motto. The Royal College of yeah. Surgeons. That's yeah. their hashtag. It's surge. just in Latin, so you can't understand <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Does that answer your question, Leila? Yeah, it does. It's interesting what you say, Duncan, because I remember being handed that ours is yellow, like little yellow sheet. And just it was almost like a checklist for me at the start where I just went and asked a bunch of questions and ticked a few boxes put it in the notes and probably didn't understand the greater scope of it then. Do you have any other memories from your take your mind back many years ago when you were me? I actually have a memory from my first ever shadowing day of anaesthetics, the anaesthetic consultants. They were like, okay, can you go and pre-assess someone? And I went, I took this really thorough history of this patient's angina, along <laughs> with how they felt with their depression, came back and this consultant turned around and she said, 
what's the man of patty? I was like, oh, sorry, who? <laughs> Who's man of patty? Were they a patient? Were they listed? I don't know. That. <laughs> so, the wrong did you look in their mouth? And she was so upset that I hadn't even understood how to do that. So I have to say, my first pre-assessment was a great medical clerking, but a complete anaesthetics failure <laughs> from that point. Duncan, how about you? My first day, I remember I was on a dental list with 16 patients on it. I found this performer and went to see one patient and stumbled through it. Then I got to the end with the risks ticking through those. Eventually, the catalan popped their head in. They'd seen the other 15 patients <laughs> in the time I'd seen that one patient. I felt a bit, a little bit lost and also a bit useless. Is that the similar experiences that you had on your first day later? Well, on my first day, I remember thinking, where do I, A, find the patient? Where is my consultant? Where do I see the patient? And what do I ask the patient? And then once I found where to go, it was definitely working out what was important to ask and what I needed to know to be able to go and deliver back to my team. So I guess that brings us on to what you guys actually do. When I started, I did a lot of nothing. And then I think I started doing a lot of everything. So how do you break down the visit? We are looking at quantifying the risk of that person in front of you. And that again boils down to what are their comorbidities that you're interested in, patient? What is the surgery that they're doing? And then what's your anaesthetic technique and what the risks associated with that for the Patient risks, usually everyone has an electronic computer system. It is the 21st century after all. You say that. I, I was thinking <laughs> this. That's the pre-starts of it, is pulling out the information that you need on the computer. But not just, oh, look, they've got angina and they're on GTN. How well controls? How well controls their hypertension, their diabetes? Notes review and investigations prior to seeing the patient. One of the key things is priming yourself to be appropriate to that patient, not only knowing where they are, what they're having done, have they had any anaesthetics before, then you can do the old cheat of looking at the old anaesthetic record and seeing their grade of intubation. Now that one took me a while to figure out isn't a very important piece of information. Then seeing the patient themselves, explain to them if there is something missing, oh, we will need to do this extra examination. And then also the consent risk part, the communication with the wider team afterwards, discussing with the consultant and when you've seen the patient, particularly if there's any red flags, discussing with the surgical team if anything is missing, such as consent forms or has the patient actually been marked. Yeah, exactly. Often they don't appear until patients in the anaesthetic room. And then also the nursing team who are looking after that patient, whether they're on a day surgery ward or as an inpatient themselves, if they need anything, it's always a good idea to communicate with the nursing team to say, this needs done, could you please do it? Or if you can't do it, who can I get to sort it out. You and the surgical team may well have to see another four or five patients in the next 20 minutes. Having a plan of how to set up a patient to be almost wrapped up in a bow ready to be brought down into the anaesthetic room is very important. Some people already have been seen by someone and that, that's a bit of a nice get out of jail card isn't it when they've yeah, been seen by a consultant actually. and or anyone a nurse in pre-op assessment clinic as well and you can see They've signed everything and they've ticked all the boxes to say their comorbidities. But not everyone has that. Who has that? Who doesn't have that? And how much can it help us? That is the difference between the periop visit, which is what you're involved in, and the overall pre-assessment of a patient in their journey. Everyone who's undergoing surgery should have filled out a questionnaire of which they tick yes or no to various conditions. That would be for very simple cases. It would just be a questionnaire. So that would be, for example, for eye surgery. So we'll park that on the side. 
Most patients will see a preoperative nurse where they'll look at their comorbidities and then there'll be different referral criteria for when they will see an anaesthetic consultant pre-op to decide and what are the risks to you and how best do we offset that with an anaesthetic plan. Those are more for the high risk patients. It is really useful though having a high risk clinic letter because you then look super great when you say to yourself, oh they've been seeing high risk and this is the plan. And actually, it's weird, but my plan's exactly the same as the consultant. <laughs> Maybe you should lead with your plan first. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Accidentally stumbled on the other yeah, one afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> I think pre-op assessment, and particularly those done by the nurses in clinic or the anaesthetists in clinic, are very important. However, you end up potentially needing to safety net yourself and the patient a little bit because they may have happened weeks to months previously. And particularly if patients get delayed or cancelled for multiple reasons, their comorbidities may have changed because of the pressure in the clinics and the time frame and the patient's understanding at that point in time not answered questions quite correctly so it is easy for things to become mists mists things to be missed and then you'll see the red mist and then you'll see the red mist <laughs> tearing up your performer you end up developing your own systems review as a general catch-all of the conditions or symptoms and signs that can be really red flag detrimental to an anesthetic that would change your plan or potentially postpone or cancel an operation a systems review that sounds good a systems review yeah. great what is that so if we talk about the anesthetic history a little bit what do you ask and what do you do i know when i first started i went in with my medical student hat mm. of going through everything drawing yeah. my little family pedigree tree or whatever <laughs> it is that we used to do yeah, um, find out what pets so, they had ex- yeah what is your anesthetic history what do you do It's a tricky one when you're a novice because it's so tailored to the anaesthetic. It's hard to specify any one way because ultimately different patients will have different comorbidities and need different questions about it. The first thing I'd say is as a novice, definitely go with the consultant on the first two or three days just to see what they ask and the style. It's going to depend on the operation they're having, but also you pick up bits of their patter which work quite well. Most things I say I've just stolen from someone far better than me. Taking a step back from all that, Broadly, what are you trying to do from that anaesthetic history? You're trying to risk stratify them, gain an insight into their functional capacity, and then based on those things, alter your anaesthetic plan, depending on what's been flagged up. It's a difficult thing. There's no one magic bullet of how to pre-assess, which I know is a frustrating thing, particularly if you're listening and you're a novice because you'd want to know the answer. Ultimately, you're there to flag up risks to the patient, to the surgery and to your anaesthetic plan, and then escalate that if needed in order to make sure it's as as safe a journey as possible for the patient all the while reassuring the patient being a friendly face and starting to establish that rapport that's going to stop them being tachycardic in the anaesthetic room if possible you need to be thinking about the fact that you're briefing at 8 15 so getting out information succinctly is important you need to have a look at their medical histories what duncan says you can cheat and see what previous anaesthetics they've had and how they've tolerated them thinking about the medications, how they're going to interact, and then that social smoking, drinking, and then their exercise tolerance. So going into the medical history, my standard patter, if I haven't got conditions to talk about, is do you have any medical conditions such as asthma, diabetes, or have you ever had any blood clots? And if they say no, is there any reason that you have visited your GP in the recent year or have been admitted to hospital? And that should capture most conditions. Anaesthetic is when did you have an anaesthetic and how did it go? You're not just listing off all their anaesthetics, you're trying to work out if someone's had post-op nausea and vomiting or if they're on intensive care and if they haven't, have they had any family history of reaction to anaesthetics? Drugs don't just state 
allergy, state what happens. And then along with medications, it's not only the medications that are listed in the notes, it's what have they taken today and have they had any recent changes on them. In terms of social history, smoking and drinking, what you're looking for, <laughs> is this person likely to alcohol withdrawal if they are going to have post-op nausea and vomiting? And then along with the exercise, can you do more than two flights of stairs? It's just a way to estimate their functional capacity. And if they can't do a flight or two flights of stairs, that's a really strong indicator that they may physiologically not do very well with an anaesthetic. I ask them what they do for a living or if they're retired, because I think that gets me to know them as a person. I recently had a... Oh, I don't know, can I, can I go? I shouldn't go that no. specific. They, um, <laughs> Definitely don't yeah, go yeah, that yeah, specific. Yeah. It allows them to talk a bit about themselves. Yeah. Or do they have any pets at home? It's you're nice. trying to, again, relate to them and build up this rapport. And you, you'll come up with your own questions of how you do that. That's what I put within my aesthetic history. And then lastly, there's different questions asked in the airway examination. Not to labour this for too long because I know it's probably a really broad topic, but is there anything in the anaesthetic history from a patient's past medical history or drugs that are definite red flags when you hear them in your mind? Like I know in my hospital, if someone's had an ACE inhibitor that morning, that's something I'll definitely tell my consultant about and something I probably didn't know at the start and didn't see in a textbook. Is there anything that you, you know, gourd reflux, that's another thing which is a bit of a flag which might change my anaesthetic plan slightly. There are quite a few things. One of the things that doesn't really get talked about is obstructive sleep apnea. And it's one of the things that we ask about using a stop bang questionnaire. Look it up if you haven't heard of it before, because then that will lead to an optimization where you can delay a patient, for example, for a CPAP machine. Diabetes, if their HbA1c isn't well controlled, they might get sent home whether or not they're on insulin and therefore it will change whether or not they go on first on the list. For me, if they're on anticoagulants, when did you last take them? What dose are you on and have you been monitored since? Those are three things, if I was to say, uh, what did I understand as a novice and what did I come out understanding were important from my history. There's so many things we could talk about because ultimately it is almost like a tree and bud thing. If they have a certain comorbidity, you need to go further into that, into how it affects them functionally, how severe it is, how long they've had it, what medications they're on. And with time, you will get to know what's relevant and what's not within that. I think definitely with medications, what I said about anticoagulants, very important, ACE inhibitors, the classic enemy of the anaesthetist, but also things like opiates and pain relief is a big one because that can lead to a real challenging post-operative period, a big one that we always talk about. And it's a bit of an odd concept when you're outside anaesthetics. We talk about it every day, functional capacity. Like, what does that mean? Flagging up that someone, yes, they can only walk 10 metres, which is a bit of a red flag in itself. But then the bigger red flag is, so how long have you been able to do that? Oh, well, actually, about two months ago, I could walk 20 minutes on the flat, and no problem, but now I can only do 10 metres, I'm housebound. You need to investigate that more, and you need to flag that up to your consultant, your senior anaesthetist team, say, something's not right here, something has changed. And again, that's something that could have changed between being pre-assessed in a clinic and the day of the surgery. They sleep downstairs and how long they've been doing for. And that's also what I ask in my ITU reviews as well. Well, I've got my ITU hat. Switching hats. So many hats. So many hats. But you do end up with a lot of hats. Like, I've had... Yes, Ash! I haven't thought about that. Banded t-shirts. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, banded scrubs. (laughs)
If you were to have told yourself something when you started novice about pre-assessment and what is a red flag, is there anything else that you would have come up with later? No, I don't think so from what we've discussed. But I think one thing which you kind of alluded to when you spoke about a diabetic on an elective list is probably appreciating the elective emergency difference when I was doing a pre-op assessment and Mm. presenting it to my consultant, the patient who's not well optimised on an elective list might be really different to the lap appendix that needs doing that afternoon. To emphasise elective, you can delay if there's a significant deterioration in an emergency. You may just have to do the surgery in some cases. Like you said, there is a subtle difference in how you should anaesthetically pre-assess someone. One of the things I remember learning on my first time on C-Pod was going to see, I think there was an ectopic pregnancy. So I did my anaesthetic history, which I was like, getting to terms with it now, know the performer, came back. And then the first thing the reg I was on with asked, what's their blood pressure and heart rate? I just hadn't looked at the ROVs and I was like, damn, that is such an important facet of that. If you've just been doing elective stuff, you can completely miss that. The broader, this is also an assessment as well, an examination almost. And knowing their BMI, the other thing I think in patients is checking they've got a cannula and it works <laughs> is quite important. Should we move on to airway? Oh, oh favourite yeah, topic of anaesthetists. Favourite topic, but also I think one of the hardest ones to know actually how to perform the examination when you first start out. Because you've got all those textbooks that have multiple grids of what each scale of malampati looks like or how you test mouth opening with your sticking fingers in mouths and whatever else you're meant to do to Disclaimer, people. Disclaimer, you shouldn't yeah, stick your fingers in that. a patient's mouth. <laughs> yeah, because they may bite your fingers. Exactly. You know, and also it's not been nice. described unpleasantly. <laughs> yeah, not nice complaints. Yeah, I'd love to know what you actually do when you go to assess an airway and what you're looking for as well. Well, as discussed with my first ever anaesthetic assessment, I, I didn't even realise that <laughs> I had to look at the airway to do anaesthetics. In my head, I'm thinking, is it going to be difficult to either intubate them or ventilate them and do I need to change my plan? What am I actually asking the patient to do? I ask them to essentially play a game with Simon Says and follow the movements I'm doing because it's easier for them to follow than it is for me to explain it. Open my mouth and stick my tongue out to look and see what their malampati is, aka what the view of the back of their mouth is. In asking to see the back of their mouth, I will have assessed mouth opening as well. I then move my chin to the top of the ceiling, and that's why my voice has gone a little bit weird, to see what the range of motion of the neck is, along with chin to the chest. And then I ask them to bite their top lip. I'm also then looking at some subtle stuff, not so subtle you could argue, it's not Sherlock Holmes here, is whether or not they've got a beard, face that may not fit a certain type of mask, or whether or not they've got a small chin. I'm putting that together with some questions. Do you have any loose teeth, caps or crowns or dentures that need to be removed? Can you remove them before theatre, please? Because believe me, you don't want to be removing a pair of dentures when you've failed to back mask them (laughs) or losing a denture down someone's airway. The other things I ask them are about, do they get reflux? And when did they last eat food? When did they last have a drink because they have risk aspiration pneumonia? And that's pretty much my airway examination. There are other things that are involved in the examination, which are investigations. So they might have had C-spine x-rays. And then lastly, the most important bit is the cheat sheet that Duncan's done earlier. What were they like before? Before they've put an LMA in, it's fine. What you're looking at with all this stuff is, am I going to ventilate them? Am I going to fit an LMA into them? Am I going to be able to intubate them? 
this is a brand new concept. Witnessing someone else doing it is very important, but can be over in the blink of an eye. The whole thing can be done within sort of five, ten seconds if someone's very slick and the patient has no problems. One thing you will develop over time is a bit of a gut feeling. I think that comes with a little bit of time, but I think it's good to drill in from day one. If you think something is abnormal and you can't quite put your finger on it, escalate that to someone with you because they might want to just pop in and see or at least in the anesthetic room double check and actually sometimes that has happened to me I've been running around seeing patients and I go to the theatre and I go hang on mm, actually now I think of it there was something a bit off I'm not quite sure let's double check when they come in and it turns out it's because they had actually slightly small mouth opening but it was quite subtle we had to change a plan as to how to safe to put the patient off to sleep because of that even if you can't quite put your finger on it you flag it up if you're commuting in particularly via public transport you will go through that phase in your novice period of looking at everyone around you not only looking for veins to cannulate but also looking at their airway and thinking hmm would they be difficult to intubate oh they would be difficult to bag up mask ventilate but it is something that comes with time and you're not going to necessarily pick up everything on your first couple of days I think what you said there is really important, Duncan, and I think I've definitely noticed that throughout my novice period and post-IAC that I guess you don't always know what abnormal is until you've seen enough cases. And so you certainly do start to feel more confident with it initially. And I think it's just good to get doing it. And, mm. and even when you observe people having a look yourself afterwards just to check that you can see what your consultants are seeing or what your senior registrars are seeing or whatever to develop kind of the confidence of performing the assessment yeah. i like the simon says thing going i've asked patients to do jaw thrusts and have ended up with all sorts of tongues going <laughs> in all sorts of places that they weren't meant to go to so it's yeah it's really good to get people to copy i think that seems like the easiest way to to get a good assessment done okay so shall we move on to talking about the risks then and again something i think that's really difficult because i don't know if you've got the the royal college handbook in your or the little leaflet in your hospitals but certainly i remember on day when i was given that and told to hand it to a patient and it has obviously a huge amount of risks in there and all the infographics about how often they are but explaining that to the patient and trying to pick out which risks are the most important to talk about I think that seems to be a skill that you don't have or know about immediately so what what do you consent for and what do you discuss with your patient? I think risk is just adverse things that could happen to you and just qualifying that for the patient not necessarily quantifying it is actually quite important people get very confused with fractions and percentages, especially when they're on the day of information load. So one of the recent things that the college has released is talking about perioperative risk in terms that people understand. One in 10 being one in your family, one in 100 being one in a village, one in 10,000, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the way that I've actually started doing the qualifying of risks. And I also just say, look, there are risks involved with everything. There's risks of you not having the surgery. So we'll talk them through. And if there are any that are specifically worrying you, we can go into more detail about that. A patient is not going to cancel the case because of the standard risks that you tell them. I've had people say that they don't want surgery when it is big surgery. And actually, we're talking about more mortality risks. What do I have my standard risks is, I'll say, one in 10 is going to be common, so you might feel a bit uncomfy after the operation and need extra pain medications. You might feel nauseated or even vomit and need some anti-sickness. You might be a bit shivery when you wake up 
and you also may have a cough after surgery. And those are common, that's one in every family. Then we've got some rarer things to tell you about. There's one in 4,000 risk that you're going to have chipping or loosening of your teeth. There's one in 8,000 that you're going to react to the drugs, which we will recognise whilst you're under and treat you accordingly. And there's one in 8,000 that you might end up on intensive care afterwards needing ventilation. And look, those are rare. That's one every small town. What I found really challenging initially that you'd be with one consultant who would say, you know, pain, nausea, vomiting, allergy, dental damage, that's it. Then you'd be with another who would say awareness and death and everything further down the line as well. So it's it's finding, I guess, what's appropriate for each patient and your way of doing it as well, based on the case. And I think the thing that I find quite tricky about how we consent risk is, and like the surgeons where they sit and, you know, the patient signs a consent form, we just verbally relay risks mm. to a patient quickly at the end of a assessment, as you say, on the day of a case. And then we just say, thanks, any questions and, and go out the door. And it, it almost feels strange sometimes to, at the end of your anaesthetic history, to to relay all of those risks if they've not heard it before. And I sometimes find I sit there for a, a little bit longer just to check that it's digested and that they're okay with it and didn't have any further questions. Yeah, I guess some of that difficulty also comes into play when you're trying to communicate the plan to the patient. Mm. Not everyone understands yeah, the definitely. kind of anaesthetic terminology. So how do you communicate with the patient? Again, this is something I've developed over time. And I, I think it was in my novice period, I was with a consultant who very quickly, I think it only took about 20, 30 seconds, talked through exactly what the patient is going to experience from being transported into the anaesthetic room, what we do, what they experience, and then talking about recovery, waking up, going back to the ward. You can see some patients visibly relax when you just talk them through, particularly if they've gone from not knowing what an anaesthetist is to then meeting one, having everything explained, having these risks told to them, calm that anxiety a little bit. Yeah, that's really important. Um, I like what you've said about the journey, and I think it really helps the patient to then understand even the kind of post-operative journey as well. How do you then relay that to the rest of your team? I found as a novice walking back in in week one and saying to the ODP of 25 years what I thought that we should do, something that was quite difficult. How do you approach communicating your plan with the team? First of all, to make sure you've introduced yourself, and particularly with the ODPs, like you said, the ODPs have sort of 25 years experience, they've been you know, they're always part of the furniture at these hospitals. And then sometimes if you're a bit lost, you can ask them, I've not done this list before. I've seen this patient. I think this is the plan. And they'll give you a bit of help and say, no, actually, yeah, that sounds like a good plan. Or, oh, well, actually, because we're doing this surgery, often we'll do this. Communications where you can win and lose a team, being honest is very important. If you haven't looked in the airway or you haven't asked about starvation, you shouldn't feel pressured. Say you haven't. Don't feel bad if you haven't asked it. Just be honest when you are when the ODP or the anaesthetic consultant says, have you done this? Although that doesn't really answer your question, I guess I'm just trying to put on the theme of just making sure you communicate openly and honestly when you are talking about your asset plan. Right, so tying it all together, I think we started by saying that part of the aim of it is to ensure that the patient's nice and safe and optimised for theatre. What types of things do you look for to work out if they are safe um, and how do you decide that? That's really good, um, a good question. And just to actually reassure you, 
you shouldn't actually be cancelling anyone. So it is a two-consultant decision in most hospital trusts, and look, this will vary. I guess it's the what is acceptable to the patient and what is acceptable to the medical team, and then are there actually things that will move the boat forward, which is are, are there actually risks that can be modified? So if they've got a heart with a 10% ejection fraction, is that going to change whether or not you delay and get them yet another echo that they've had six months ago? That was a bit of a whirlwind of a pre-assessment and we know that we've touched on some areas and not others. This is not an exhaustive list. It's important to mention some of the opinions that are expressed are Minor Duncan's opinions. This isn't the formal endorsement from the Royal College of this is the way to do things. We're just trying to give you that are foundations and our own thoughts on it. I think it's important you go and talk to the senior colleagues you're working with in your trust and in your department to discuss this more and find out the best way you will build your pre-assessment practice. Perfect. And we'd like to thank Leila, who was a fantastic host. Too good, in fact, that we uh, were worried she'll steal our day jobs. Yeah, I may not be back on the next episode. We've got some links that we would like the novice to go and look at, haven't we, Duncan? Linked into the bio of this episode, we have the Royal College of Anaesthetists Novice Guide. Then there is also a link to the Association of Anaesthetists Preoperative Assessment and Patient Preparation and the role of the anaesthetists. We've got a BJA Education article, which is excellent. There is a link to a YouTube video about airway assessment and then also a link to the Royal College of Anaesthetists Risk Resource Infographic, which is a very useful thing that Owen talked about in the episode. And as ever, e-learning for healthcare, e-learning for anaesthesia module, linked in the bio as well. Yeah, great resource, e-learning for health. A lot of time and effort has been put into it. Thank you for tuning in and for listening and for your support. We look forward to seeing you in the next episode, which is about preparing your theatre with our friend and colleague, Munya.